Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorza. I'm with Georgetown, George Washington Universities and the Middle East Institute, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at AEI. And Dalva Rohash, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we have um, as our very special guest, um, Hal Brands, who is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor at the Johns Hopkins SAIS School of Advanced International Studies and a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and at the same time, our guest for our 100th episode and anniversary a few weeks before the one-year anniversary of the war. Hal, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, no pressure, <laughs> but we're expecting very smart things from you. <laughs> I, be I better deliver. I'm, I'm grateful to you for having me for this uh, special episode. And, you know, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, so it's, it's cool to actually be able to participate in this. Well, thank you. Um, in in the symmetry of um, 100 episodes, uh, you wrote recently in one of your articles about why the last century, the last 100 years, has been the century of Ukraine. Um, so can you, um, just to start us off, can you talk us um, through why you think it has been the century of Ukraine and how do you expect this century to be ending? Sure. So I've had kind of two things on the brain over the past year. One, obviously, is the war in Ukraine, but then the other is a longer project that I'm doing on really the evolution of great power rivalry over the past 150 years or so. If you think of that period kind of as the modern era, because it's defined by major clashes over who gets to control Eurasia or big parts of Eurasia and then the waters around it, it kind of makes sense in, in that regard. And what you see, if you look at the four major wars that have shaped the modern era, so that's World War One, World War Two. Cold War, which is not a hot war in the same sense, but nonetheless a global conflict. And then we'll count the Ukraine war today. Ukraine is central to all of those conflicts in a variety of different ways. And so in, in World War I and World War II, just to kind of summarize it briefly, the conquest or acquisition of Ukraine is really central to Germany's plans, both under the Second Reich and the Third Reich, to establish a continental empire that could compete with the British Empire and ultimately with the United States. Uh, during the Cold War, Ukraine is a really important part of the Soviet Union and is, in fact, one of the actors that kind of seals the demise of the Union in 1990-91 with its declaration of independence, its refusal to go along with the revised Union project, uh, and a variety of other steps that are taken during that period. And of course, it's central to this conflict today. And of course, this conflict is about much more than whether Ukraine survives and thrives as an independent country, although in many ways that's the most important stake, certainly for Ukrainians. It's also about the global balance between authoritarianism and democracy. It's about how the strategic equilibrium is defined in Eastern Europe and more broadly. It's about the prospects of the Sino-Russian relationship and a, and a variety of other things. So regardless of which of these conflicts you look at, Ukraine has been central to them in one way or another. In that article, you... Uh made reference to the great uh, Harold Mackinder and the whole idea of a uh, Eurasian heartland. But from an American, that's always been a 
difficult frame of reference for Americans to hold on to and to latch on to, rather than seeing the continental balance as being interconnected to, let's call it the maritime balance. We tend to disagree, or at least when we're confused, we tend to disaggregate those two. I'm guessing that you still see them as being essentially linked in some way. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, you know, one of the problems with doing intellectual history is that you spend a lot of time focusing on the ideas of people that most of your friends and uh, family certainly never heard of. Uh, and that's that's definitely the case with Halford McKinder, which is not exactly a household name now, but he was in some ways the father of contemporary geopolitics. He was one of the the big kind of strategic thinkers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, although he actually lived until um, the end of World War II. And he kind of made a name for himself by thinking about Eurasia as an integrated strategic theater, where if you could amass control of that theater or a significant part of it, obviously you'd have lots and lots of land power. And this gets to the integration point you were talking about. But you would also be free of threats on your borders. You would have unrivaled resources for the building of sea power. And so this is what McKinder talks about in his 1904 article, The Geographical Pivot of History, as the ability to pursue the empire of the world. And so to make this a little bit more tangible, the fear was like, you know, if Napoleon was able to eliminate his enemies on the continent, then he would be free to pursue a maritime rivalry with Britain, right? If, if Hitler had been able to consolidate his conquests in World War II, then he would have been able to project power further afield. And so it's kind of a, a clunky way of referring to a relatively simple idea. And the reason that Ukraine matters so much in this schema is that you can think of Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, Ukraine, some of the other countries in that corridor as kind of representing the hinge of Eurasia because it's, it's the place where kind of the agricultural um, and resource riches of the Russian heartland meet up with the industrial resources of the advanced societies of, of Europe. And so if you look at the major conflicts, particularly the World Wars, the Cold War as well, what you either have is um, a country that's located, you know, kind of in Central Europe, right? So Germany that is trying to project power into the heartland to get its hands on those agricultural resources, on oil and a variety of other things. Or you've got a country that's in the heartland, the Soviet Union, that's trying to push its way out and get its hands on the industrial resources of Europe. And, and it was that combination that really worried people like Mackinder and some other great geopolitical uh, thinkers, and really in a lot of ways has oriented America's approach to the world over the past hundred years as well. And so that's why Ukraine figures so importantly in all these conflicts, including the one that's happening right now. If there is a difference between those previous conflicts that you describe and the current one, uh, it strikes me that it, it lies in the fact that those previous conflicts were conflicts over who subdues Ukraine or this, 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 this sort of geographic area, whereas right now the West... United States, European Union are trying to make sure that Ukraine survives as a self-governing nation, one that has agency, that has, you know, self-determination, that can sort of make its own decisions about its 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 its, its affairs, in the hope that such a self-governing Ukraine will be prospectively a reliable partner, ally, you know, member of the EU, member of NATO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I was wondering what your assessment is 
given Ukraine's history post-1991, that will actually happen, that, that a sort of post-war Ukraine will, will emerge as, you know, as an A-plus country as opposed to the sort of B-minus country that it was for most of its post-1991 history. So I can't confidently say what I think Ukraine's political and geopolitical status is going to be coming out of this war for, for two reasons. One is that I'm I'm not, you know, an expert on Ukraine, not an expert on Eastern Europe. But I think the, the more problematic reason is that it depends entirely on how the war ends. And, and so, you know, a war that ends because Ukraine has been successful in liberating all of its territory and somehow getting the Russians to respect that creates one post-war reality, which in some ways is, is probably actually more favorable to deeper integration with Western institutions like the EU or NATO, which has have been skittish for a variety of reasons about including countries that have ongoing disputes with their neighbors over territory. But it's a very different reality if you have a Ukraine that is essentially you know, vivisected territorially, regardless of how large the area that Russia holds is, and is crippled economically because of ongoing Russian attacks on infrastructure because of the cost of the war, because of a variety of other things. While it would not you know, be a particularly just solution, I can see a number of European countries, and frankly, the United States, being more skeptical about really deep integration, strategic integration with Ukraine in the latter case than in the, the former case. But I do think you know, if we assume that Ukraine is going to make it out of this war kind of more or less okay, in the sense that it's going to survive as an independent state that has, you know, some degree of economic viability, even though that's probably going to be dependent on infusions of, of resources from abroad for some period of time. One reality that's going to emerge is that Ukraine might be the greatest military power in Europe at, at that point. If you just think about the reserve of trained manpower that Ukraine is going to have. If you look at the fact that the Ukrainian military will presumably have been considerably uparmed during this conflict as they integrate newer and better Western systems, you know, NATO standard gear and, and things like that. So in, in some way, the United States uh, and its key Western allies are going to have to think about how you make that Ukraine a more important part of the Western community, even if that fall short of EU membership, NATO membership, and, and so on and so forth. Because the simple strategic reality is that it's going to be critical to the balance of power, you know, up and down Eastern Europe, really. You're making the point that is um, obviously crucial to all of this, that Ukraine is and will continue to be dependent on Western aid. And if we're looking over the last year and the way things look for the next few months, at least, that means on when it comes to military aid, the United States, which means that the United States is for the time being, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, still, you know, again, for the last hundred of years, the most important actor to European security. But we also know, and you did a lot of work on that, that the United States has been trying to pivot away the, the old European fear to the Asia Pacific, and that now the United States is in a position in which it has to balance out resources for Asia Pacific slash China with resources for Europe, expecting Europeans to do more, which they're not, and all of that. 
And so looking in, you know, six months, one year ahead, presuming that we were we are going to stay on a similar path of Ukraine taking bit by bit more territory with the help of Western military aid, where does that leave then the United States when it comes to the problem of Russia? Um, is now at this point basically Russia in Washington's and our understanding a defeated power and the problem is how to clean up and how to you know, phase it out so that Ukraine gets to a winning point, maybe imperfect, but nevertheless. And so that means finite sources for now. Or do you see the need to balance and the potential risk of a conflict in the Asia Pacific realm to lead to the United States, you know, reorienting its attention and then European security falling apart? Well, I certainly hope it's not the the latter. I mean, I guess what I what I would say is that in in some ways the course of the war so far, and I, I want to put uh, an asterisk next to so far, so we can come back to that in a second, has maybe made it in the medium term a little bit easier for the United States to put more focus on the Indo Pacific, simply because you know the war is really ground Putin's army down to a nub in Ukraine. And, and obviously Russia still has lots of other capabilities it can use to make trouble. But if you think about kind of the Russian conventional military threat to Eastern Europe, it's probably going to be less than what it was in December 2021 and far less than it would have been had, had Russia managed to, to pull off the smash and grab operation against Ukraine, where you would have had an empowered Russia with new vectors for exerting pressure on Eastern Europe. And and so the argument that the Biden administration made in its national defense strategy, which is kind of like Russia is an acute threat, but we don't think that it's going to require dramatically more resources to balance over the long term, that looks more credible today than it did on February 23rd, 2022, right? And, and so that's that's the good news. But the bad news, I think, comes in, in a couple of forms. One is that, you know, that scenario that I just laid out is contingent on the war ending at, at some point. And, you know, whether that is the case is anybody's guess. And, and my hunch is that even the most optimistic folks in terms of where they think the conflict is going, think that the conflict is probably going to end in some sort of, you know, reduced, lower intensity, frozen conflict style thing, like on more advantageous lines than Ukraine holds today. But if you're thinking about a way in which the war ends in, let's say, the next year, and you had to bet a dollar, like that's what I would bet on. But even so, there's there's not much indication that the Russians are interested in ending the war on, on that basis, right? And And so... It's not clear the war will actually end in a time frame that allows you to get to this period where like the Ukraine problem has gone away or diminished and then you can spend five years really ramping up to deal with the China threat. The other major question mark is is what Russia does in terms of mobilizing its own military power. And so, you know, again, today Russia has dramatically less conventional military power than it did on February 23rd, 2022. If Russia does another 500,000 man mobilization, which is rumored right now, if it really gears up its industrial base to producing lots and lots of military gear, which will be of a lower quality than it had because of export controls and a variety of other things, but it can still produce a lot of quantity over the next year or two, then we might find ourselves in a place where the conventional threat to Eastern Europe looks a little bit more severe. 
So all of this is a long way, I guess, of saying two things. One, one is that there's a huge amount of contingency still here. And two, I, I think we kind of have to get over the idea that at some point something is going to happen that's just going to allow the United States to say, like, over to you boys on European security and, and focus on another region, in part because even a degraded Russia will still be dangerous, but just also in part because that's not how transatlantic security institutions were built to work, right? NATO was created out of a recognition that there was no European solution to European security problems, not just because of the balance of military power, but because there was only one country that could solve the collective action problems and the internal rivalries that had turned Europe into a geopolitical hothouse twice in the 20th century. You know, it, it feels like we're a long way removed from those times right now. In a lot of ways we are, but that's actually simply a testament to how effective the current transatlantic security structure has been in putting Europe into an era that hasn't looked anything at all like its past. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. And there's just also the fact that when you're a global power, there's a limit to how much you can pivot at any given time. And that sometimes gets lost in these conversations as well. I wonder how far removed, though, we are from a world in which American leadership and, and its role in solving co- collective action problems in Europe, uh, how, how far, far from that world we still are. I mean, given the fact that in many ways, European allies, especially Western European allies, have sort of lagged in terms of their initiative in helping Ukraine and in, 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 in sort of addressing the problem in, in, in real time. I mean, you know, Germany is still having the same conversation about tanks and armor <laughs> that it was having a month ago and, and so on and so forth. So, 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 so how, what, what, what's your perspective on, I mean, you know, Europe itself collectively or through leadership of individual European countries, you know, that, that it will be able to sort of assert a, a, a sort of more forthcoming role in, 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 in addressing security issues? A footnote to that too, because Hal, as you noted, if Ukraine is successful, in, in many ways, even if it isn't completely successful, it will have become one of the foremost military powers, if not the foremost military power in Europe. But that is especially true if one takes into account the Polish buildup as well. So what is, you know, slowly kind of emerging from this is uh, a fully strategically mature and engaged I hate to call it Polish-Lithuanian, you know, confederation, but since we're being ridiculously historical, um, it is kind of like that. The question is, wouldn't that be the framework or maybe the point of entry for American engagement in European balancing uh, as we go forward? So I guess two two separate things. The the first is that I, I think it's very unlikely you'll get to anything approximating full or significant European strategic autonomy anytime in the future, because like, it's just not clear who leads that project absent the United States, right? You, the, the, the irony is that you know, European integration was a project that only worked because the United States was there reassuring everybody. And if the United States leaves today, it's not clear who takes that up, right? And so, you know, the French would love to lead an integrated Europe. Alas, nobody else particularly wants that, right? Um, there are lots of questions about the role that Germany would play in leading an integrated Europe, not just for historical reasons, but for reasons related to more recent German foreign policy decision making as well. And so for all of the complaints that lots of European countries have about the United States, 
you know, they actually trust the United States a lot more than they do any of the other potential leaders of that community. And in fact, it's not going too far to say, I mean, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, whereas Americans think of NATO as a multilateral organization that's located in Brussels, a lot of European countries, particularly the ones on the eastern side of Europe, view it as a bilateral security relationship with the United States. Like NATO exists in Washington for if you are Poland, right, or you are Estonia, uh, or you are uh, Romania. And and so I just don't see it. I think it's kind of counter to the logic of the past 75 years. Now, now Giselle, on, on your question, I mean, I think it's true that what this conflict has revealed is to some degrees you see sort of a two-speed Europe emerging, right, where uh, countries on the Eastern Front that are more directly exposed to Russian military power take that threat more seriously and they're balancing more seriously than the Germans and the French are. But it's complicated because, you know, the UK has more geographic security than, you know, Germany does, for instance, but the UK takes the Russia problem more seriously than Germany does as well. And if you look at sort of where real expeditionary military capability as limited as it is, as limited as it is, resides, I think there's still more of it in the UK and France than there is in any other two states in in Europe. I'm I'm also not quite ready to give up on the European countries that have lagged a bit in supporting Ukraine and, and preparing themselves. I, I'm a bit more generous, I think, than many are in terms of my assessment of German foreign policy over the last year. It's the changes are not enough. They are slow. They are um, grudging. You could say that you know many of the same things about American support for Ukraine. To, to be honest. But the changes have nonetheless been been pretty historic. You know, France is a more complicated story because France always has a more complicated relationship with you know the transatlantic security partnership and its objectives. But but my you know goal would still be to have sort of a U.S. Europe relationship rather than a U.S. relationship with the most active part of Europe because I think that there's power and there's goodness there. So where does that then leave us on Russia? You know, you you pointed to the, I guess, for you, most likely scenario that Russia is going to keep throwing whatever they can get their hands on at Ukraine, that there's no understanding or even inching, at least from what we see publicly, towards the fact that they might consider actually leaving the war um, at some point. And, you know, with our hesitation to discuss, um, we're, I, I guess the, the West is inching towards the discussions around, is this a Putin problem or is this a Russia problem? Nevertheless, um, there's, we cannot foresee any near to medium term circumstance in which Putin goes unless, you know, there's something um, unexpected happening, um, and um, the war ends from the Russian understanding. So in one way or another, in two years from now, Russia will continue to the extent that we don't know yet to be a spoiler for European security. And you just published a book about um, lessons from the Cold War, which is called The Twilight Struggle. And we absolutely recommend um, our listeners to look into it based on your research then and different phases and different approaches, including the 80s, towards winning the Cold War and defeating the Soviet Union, 
what would you say are the most important lessons that we should focus on when looking at, at Russia and trying to define, again, in the short to medium term, Russia containment strategy for the circumstances now? I mean, I think the most important one is is maybe also the most obvious, which is which is simply that we have to avoid what we've done several times with Russia now in the post-Cold War era, which is, you know, something bad happens in our relationship with Russia, and then we view it as kind of a one-off event after which we're going to get back to this more constructive relationship, whether that's, you know, a reset or a stable and predictable relationship or whatever the case may be. I think the, the Russians have given us plenty of evidence that they're not particularly interested in that. And that as certainly as long as Putin is in charge and perhaps even longer, Russia is going to be a source of pretty severe instability, not just within Eastern Europe, but sort of within the international system writ large. And so what we need to start thinking about is that, you know, the Ukraine war is immense and it's important in its own right, but we have to view it as part of a longer period of competition, fairly intense competition with Russia. But in some ways, that's begging the question, I, I suppose, because I think, you know, the point that, that you were getting at, which is the right one, is sort of like, OK, well, in that longer competition, what what do we want? Right. And, and what are our objectives? And while I think it would be great to have a Russia that is governed democratically and that, you know, begins to pursue a greater degree of integration with the West, that just doesn't seem to be in the cards right now or anytime soon. And, and even if it were it would be the result of events that are so unexpected that we couldn't plan on that eventuality. And, and so my sense is where we're likely to find ourselves is just kind of in a, in a problem management mode where we're trying to, you know, for lack of a better word, contain Russia, prevent it from destabilizing the areas around it, building stronger bulwarks against Russian power in, in places like Ukraine and the Baltic and, and Poland and essentially making the bet that the system uh, in Russia will not last forever. The current attitude of Russian leaders will not last forever, but we can't foresee when forever is. And so we're simply going to have to do our best to hold the line and prevent Russia from endangering a relatively healthy, safe, thriving world on its borders. That, that's not a particularly creative solution, I, I admit. Um, particularly for somebody who studied the the Cold War, as as I have, but I don't particularly see what the alternative is at this point. One of the sort of arguments against getting involved in this war is, is a continuation of a um, sort of an impulse that's arisen in American strategic dialogue as the danger from China has become more apparent. That is that. We need to pull a reverse Kissinger triangulation to try to convince uh, or, you know, play a Russia card against Beijing. I wonder, too, if sort of as Russia declines, there won't also emerge sort of this feeling that uh, having Russia becoming too subordinate to to China contains a, a danger in itself or conversely that the Chinese might essentially begin to see the Russians as a kind of proxy to uh, distract the United States and the West more broadly from affairs in East Asia. At some level, sort of above the what are the Chinese learning for the Taiwan invasion, how do you think that the, the great power dynamic will be affected in the 
in that again in that medium term uh, by these ends. I think sort of the bad scenario that you outlined is almost certain to materialize. I mean, Russia is going to come out of this war more economically and technologically dependent on China, more diplomatically dependent as well, just because, you know, Russia has alienated more or less every advanced democracy in the world. It still has some cards to play in the global south, but really it's only meaningful strategic partner, you know, other than the likes of, of Belarus and maybe increasingly Iran is going to be China. And so that that relationship is going to be a fact of life for some time to come. And as Russia grows more alienated from the West, I mean, it just kind of follows that it's going to become more dependent on China. And, you know, to use Bismarck's old phrase, China is increasingly going to become the, the rider in that alliance and Russia will be the horse. Um, now, again, the problem is that it's not clear what the U.S. can do about that at the moment without sacrificing interests that are even more important. And, and so, you know, you, you can make the argument that the bevy of Western sanctions that have been put in place on Russia are driving Russia closer to China. True. It doesn't necessarily follow from that that the sanctions are a bad idea, right, because you actually need them in place to degrade Russia's capabilities and, and so on and so forth. So I, I think we're just in a situation where the United States and its allies are going to be dealing with a more consolidated Eurasian bloc with China and Russia at its core. Now, now the good news is that the democracies kind of ringing those countries are more consolidated as well, right? And so one of the cool things about the Ukraine sanctions coalition is it's not just the transatlantic community. You've got Asian countries participating in it as well. One of the neat things about what's happening in the Western Pacific right now is you have the UK and France and some other European countries taking greater interest in the security of Taiwan. And so I think there's a growing recognition that the security of the international order uh, is perhaps not fully indivisible, is at least partially indivisible. And so, you know, countries that are invested in the liberal international order in Europe also need to be invested in peace and security in the Western Pacific and, and things like that. The, the other point I'll make, and, and this will um, help check the box for the requisite Cold War analogies that I have to bring out in every conversation, <laughs> is that it, it may actually be that driving the Russians and the Chinese closer together is the way that you drive them apart over the longer term. And, and this was an insight that Dwight Eisenhower had in the 1950s, which was basically that, you know, this partnership between Russia and China, Soviet Union and China back then, is not a natural one. There's not a lot we can do about it in the near term. So let's put maximum pressure on the parties in that relationship on the theory that that will push them closer together and then they will make each other so miserable that it will ultimately lead to cracks in the relationship. <laughs> And there was a version of that that kind of plays out in the 1950s. And so the United States puts a lot of pressure on Mao's China, which responds by asking Khrushchev for support in the various Taiwan Strait crises of the decade. Khrushchev gives it kind of, you know, grudgingly because he doesn't particularly want to fight a nuclear war with the United States over Kemoy and Matsu. And that starts introducing certain strains in, in the relationship. And so Putin is willing to accept a degree, a greater degree of Russian subordination to China as the price of his war in Ukraine than many of us would have expected five years ago, for instance. That may not be true of the next Russian ultranationalist who, who sits in the Kremlin. Right? And so it's possible that five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, when you have different leaders in Moscow and Beijing, that degree of subordination starts to look a little bit less attractive to Russia. And maybe you get tensions at, at that point. It's, it's a longer term play, but I think it's realistically the only one we have.
I wonder, um, before we draw this to a, to a close, whether you could tell us a little bit about your last week's column on America being the only remaining global superpower. You, you know, present these these examples from 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 the context of of the current war with you know the United States being really in the lead with the intelligence prior to the Russian attack, with the U.S. being in a unique position to build coalitions. Uh, to push back against uh, Russia's aggression, the U.S. providing high Mars to, you know, as you say, look at the difference that those 20 high Mars uh, launchers made in the war. If there were 40, maybe we'd be recording this from Moscow. I mean, you don't actually write that. Uh, <laughs> that would be one reading. So, so one possible reading. I think you just got yourself sanctioned. <laughs> one, one, one possible reading of, of your column is 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 a very sort of complacent one, right? Like it doesn't really matter what we do. Uh, we can get away with underinvesting in, into our military. We can get away with political dysfunction in Washington, ballooning federal debt and, 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 and just sort of tumbling up on things without really caring all that much about what's happening in the world. And we will still have this sort of, you know, unique position in the, in the world. Why would that be a bad reading of your column? So I, I was actually intending the column to address a different perspective on U.S. foreign policy, which is this idea that the United States is past its prime geopolitically and that it just can't do anything right in the world. And, and there had been a certain narrative along those lines that had emerged really during the later uh, GWAT era in, in particular. And one of the points I made in the column is that if, if you are kind of a casual observer of U.S. foreign policy and, and I were to ask you, you know, what's the last major international crisis that the United States really managed quite well, it might take you a minute to think of an answer. That, that's not to sort of buy into the critique that the last 30 years of U.S. foreign policy has been a disaster. I don't, I don't think that that's true. Right. But let's say you're one of my students at Johns Hopkins and, you know, your historical consciousness is sort of bounded by the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and then the withdrawal from Afghanistan in, in 2021, you could be forgiven for having a little bit of a jaded view of America's role in the world. And what the Ukraine crisis has done has given us, I think, a much needed example of most, if not all, the parts of U.S. foreign policy really working kind of as they're supposed to, which, again, is, is not to argue that our approach to the war has been flawless or that there's no need for criticism or anything like that. I, I think that there's you know, lots of grounds on which people can and have challenged the Biden administration's policy. But look, the intelligence performance, with with some notable exceptions, has been remarkable. If you think about the way the United States has basically read Putin's playbook to the world before he can execute the plays, the coalition management piece has been pretty impressive. Um, you know, going back really to late 2021 in terms of doing the legwork in trying to convince European and other countries that this was coming so that they would be readier to respond when it did. Um, it's certainly been an advertisement, as, as you mentioned, with respect to the HIMARS Dalibor, um, for sort of the, the quality of American and more broadly Western military gear relative to Russian military gear uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so I don't want it to be read as an argument for complacency, because what we also see in this conflict is that, you know, had the United States done things differently, the war could have come out very, very differently, right? So the United States not leaned so far forward in terms of sharing not just strategic warning, but tactical warning with Ukraine and the run-up to the Russian invasion, you know, the battle for Kiev might have gone very, very differently than it, than it did. But just to make the point that 
you know, as I say, there really is only one superpower. There's only one country in the world that can do all of this stuff. And at a time when the global situation looks particularly unstable, it's, it's actually kind of useful, not just for Americans, but for folks in Beijing and Moscow and Tehran and Pyongyang to be reminded of that fact. So how um, we didn't tell you at the beginning, we put pressure on you, but we didn't tell you that we're always aiming to end an Eastern Front podcast with a positive note. And usually we don't manage to because it is the Eastern Front, right? And so you get extra points, not only for um, talking us um, through all of that, but managing to, to end on a double positive note. Um, and this is really fitting for our 100 episodes. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be your ray of sunshine. <laughs> well, uh you're nearly qualified to become a substitute host here on the Eastern Front. <laughs> okay. So from me, Julia Zhoja. And me, Giselle Donnelly. And Dalbarahaj. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.